Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in both cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Brian O'Keefe, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fishing for bonefish in the Bahamas. We're broadcasting live over the Internet as well as on a teleconference call. The link to our online broadcast is available on our homepage of our website, which is askaboutflyfishing.com. The call-in phone number for our teleconference call is 212-990-8000, and the PIN number is 6913-POUND. This show is going to be going for about 90 minutes in length, and during the first hour we'll be asking Brian O'Keefe the questions you have sent in in advance over the Internet. And during the last 30 minutes we'll field your questions live over the teleconference call and the Internet. If you're listening to our Internet broadcast and you'd like to ask a question of Brian, just go to our homepage on www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of Brian O'Keefe that says, click here to ask Brian O'Keefe your most important question. For those of you on our teleconference call, just wait until we open our lines, and then you can ask your questions live. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the call ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website and listen to the broadcast at your convenience. The content of the broadcast is copyrighted and the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business at Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll talk with Brian O'Keefe about one of the most exciting fly fishing experiences, fishing for bonefish in the Bahamas. Royal Gorge Anglers is a full-service fly shop on the Arkansas River in Canyon City, Colorado. They provide walk, wade, and float fishing guide service on the Arkansas and South Platte, as well as several private high country ranches. Their specialty is fly fishing education, and they work hard to make sure that everyone taking a trip leaves as a better fly angler. Visit the folks at Royal Gorge Anglers, the gateway to southern Colorado. They're conveniently located on U.S. Highway 50, only 45 minutes from Colorado Springs. Call 888 888- Nine nine four six seven four three. That's eight 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 nine nine four six seven four three. Or go to www.royalgorgeanglers.com. That's royalgorgeanglers.com. Before we introduce Brian, we'd like to let you know about the great gift we have to give away tonight. Brian has been kind enough to provide a Scientific Angler's Mastery Series fly line for our drawing. The proud winner tonight will receive a certificate that can be redeemed for any of the Scientific Mastery Series fly lines. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Brian's section that says Register for Drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and then you'll be registered. We'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Our guest tonight is Brian O'Keefe. Brian's been serious about fly fishing for more than 30 years. At age 8, He spent his summers in Montana with his grandparents, and it's there that he learned the art of fly casting and fishing with his grandfather. His interest in photography came about a little differently. Uh, That was used as documentation for what was suspected by his family to be just tall tales. Brian's an accomplished fly caster, and he's earned the title of Master Certification in Fly Casting Instruction from the Federation of Fly Fishers. He has also competed in and won many fly casting competitions. He's traveled to some of the wildest and most remote angling destinations in the world, including Asia, Africa, South America, and more. 
and today he lives in Oregon, uh, continues his work in angling and outdoor photography, and he's had photography published in periodicals all around the country, including the New York Times, Miami Herald, Los Angeles Times, and he's had cover shots in many of the outdoor and fly fishing publications. He also works as a rep for scientific anglers in Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. It's a great pleasure to give a warm welcome to Brian O'Keefe. Evening, Brian. Good evening. How are you? Hi, great. Brian. How are you doing? Just fine. Great. Um, Brian, tonight there's kind of two, two halves as I see this. We've got the Bahamas and we've got bonefish. So a lot of the questions that came in tonight were about the Bahamas. And so maybe we'll start there and then we'll work into bonefish more specifically because that could be used about anywhere that they're bonefish. But why don't we talk a little bit about the Bahamas on just where they're at, uh, what, what they're composed of, you know, how you might get there, that kind of thing first. Sure. Well, I think most people realize the Bahamas are in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. If you drew a straight line from Miami and headed east, it wouldn't take you very long to get to the island group of Bimini, and then heading straight east from there would be the Berries, and then eventually to Eleuthera. And above that, you'd have the island groups of Grand Bahama and Abaco and the northern Bahamas. And a little bit below that, say east of oh, Key Largo or somewhere in there, would be Andros and Nassau, the upper Exumas and, um, and Cat Island. And below that, maybe parallel to Key West, would be the southern Bahamas, which include a big group of islands, uh, Lower Exuma, Long Island, Rum Key, Crooked Island, Acklands, Maguana, and... Great Inagua, going way down south, almost to Cuba. Well, that's What's the best uh, way to get there, uh, Brian, and what kind of accommodations do you look for when you're there? Well, I'm on the West Coast, so I usually do not get to the Bahamas in one day, but people from the central and eastern part of the country can easily get to the Bahamas in one day. Most flights, the big flights go to Nassau from there. That's the hub for Bahamas Air to uh, get out to the out islands. Quite a few smaller planes will leave Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, and go to some of the bigger uh, small towns like Freeport and Marsh Harbor and places on Andros. But um, if you're coming from a long ways away, most people will fly to Miami or Fort Lauderdale and then to Nassau and then to their final destination. There are charters available also uh, in Florida for just about every, well, there's not a lot of big towns, but every town in that's of decent size in the Bahamas. And sometimes with a group of five or six, that's not a bad way to go. The connections are real easy and it's fast. And then once you're there, there's so much variety in, in the Bahamas for places to stay. Uh, there are five-star resorts. And I'm not talking about just in Nassau. Really, that's a hop-off spo- uh, point for most fishermen. There's not a lot going there as far as um, flats fishing, for that matter. But once you're out in the out islands, there's deluxe hotels and lodges. There's mid-price hotels and lodges, and there's just local uh, hotels on the small islands that cater to uh, traveling Bahamians and a few Americans. So, really, all budgets, all styles, uh, from the family-type resort with beaches to the very primitive out-island spots that cater primarily to uh, fishermen and travelers and that sort of thing. So, do most is there fishing, uh, bone fishing, on most of the islands in, in the Bahamas? Yeah, really, 
pretty much all of them have some sort of flats and flats fishing. At the very north is Grand Bahama and Abaco, and that area is literally world famous for its bone fishing with the marls and really nice places to stay and, and uh, really big fish also. And as you come down through the whole island chain, there's really just a couple smaller islands that have deep water right off the bat. Otherwise, any place that has some shallow water, uh, it's going to have bonefish, and in addition to you know other species too. But yes, I'd say there's bonefish pretty much all over the Bahamas. Uh, Brian, I have a question here from Ron out in Idaho, who wants to pin you down. He uh, he'd kind of like to know what if there's a specific area in the Bahamas that you think offers the finest bone fishing. And then several people have also inquired, and it sounds like you've alluded to this possibility, but they're interested in bringing their wife who's a non-fisher, and they want to know if there's uh, some way that their wife can be either along or nearby while they're fishing or at least uh, have some diversions for her. Right. Well, that's a, that question could be debated among a lot of people as far as the best fishing. Um, I'll kind of break that down into two categories, meaning good constant action fishing and the search for big fish. So really the big concentrations of fish where there's all-day action are generally on the larger islands like Abaco, which has the marls, Andros with all the different bites and just miles, square mile after square mile of good fishing. The big uh, bite of Acklands, which is between Crooked Island and, and Acklands Island, is a huge area. Those places have uh, the potential for lots of fish, singles, doubles, schools, and some big fish. And, uh, and then pretty much those in the know that have scoured the Bahamas for really big fish, meaning, you know, 8 pounds to 13, anything over 13 approaching world record size would be, you know, a, a, tr- a fish of a lifetime. But some real big fish could be caught uh, off Sandy Point on Abaco, especially near Moores Island, which is a small, uh, very little place, but it's surrounded by huge flats, just two two tiny towns, and it's a, a day fishing trip out of Sandy Point. It's known for gigantic bonefish. In fact, I saw one that was easily in that world record category, but I didn't even cast at it because I thought it was a barracuda. I couldn't imagine <laughs> bonefish being that big, but it just swam by until it saw me and then it spooked. But uh, and down in the berries is another area of Lots and lots of flats. In fact, one is uh, called Infinity Flats because it basically goes to the horizon six miles away. So there's uh, huge areas in the Berry Islands, not as well known. Great Harbor Keys in the north and Chub Keys to the south. And uh, in between is just tons and tons of great fishing opportunities and the shot at some big fish. Andros is famous for, for big bones, and there's certain little cuts around Moxie Town and that area in the in the middle of Andros that kind of secret to some of the older guides, and there's really big bonefish in there. In fact, some of the schools you see won't have very many fish under nine or ten pounds in them. So, but then you have a shot at big fish really everywhere you go. But uh, you know, little tiny Maguana down in the south, it it has a big average. It has an average of about six pounds, which is uh, pretty darn good by bone fishing standards in the Bahamas because the m- most fish that you see are in the three to three and a half pound range and if you have a guide that's real keen into big fish they'll 
take you to where they see more big fish, generally closer to deeper water, and um, and they're kind of creatures of habit. So big fish like a certain area, and they'll generally come back to it. As far as a place to go and bring a person who's into beaches and maybe a pool and, and uh, that sort of thing, I'd recommend, well, first of all, about everything I say tonight can be checked on either Google or anything else for more for more detailed information, but some of the big uh, travel people around, whether it's uh, Flywater Travel, Kaufman's, The Fly Shop, Frontiers, all of those, well, they have beautiful color catalogs, and they'll mention the amenities to their uh, the lodges they represent, and many of them are on beaches, uh, have pools, have other things to do like snorkeling and little trips out to islands to just hike around and, and seeing some uh, neat little towns. Uh, I know Andros has two or three great lodges that offer scuba diving, sailing, lots of things like that. But primarily the average bonefish lodge in the Bahamas isn't all that super exciting for non-fishermen. They're in a uh, flat area, so there's not really a lot of scenery, sometimes not a lot of deep water nearby. Consequently, it would be good for bone fishing. And some areas like Grand Bahama that have bigger towns like Freeport have several places to stay that, you know, they're right near town. People can go to the downtown area, even casinos, um, deep-sea fish, scuba dive. And the guides will take the fishermen out, sometimes trailering boats down the island to the east and then launching and uh, fishing that back country on Grand Bahama that's really good. Writing Point uh, rings a bell, and and there's a couple other on there. But a, a search on Google or with those travel agents will find quite a few different options for people on any budget or with or without non-fishermen. We should point out that... Uh Brian speaks with a certain amount of authority. Uh, I believe you mentioned that you've been to the Bahamas on 27 different occasions. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. It's not quite a home away from home, especially when I live in Oregon, but <laughs> it, it gets to you, and it's pretty hard not to want to go back a couple times a year. Well, out of all the places that you have fished in the world for bonefish, is, is, that, is the Bahamas still a favorite for you? Well, I really like the Bahamas just because there's so much wade fishing. There's really good flats. It's a combination of people, scenery, quality of fishing, uh, and fairly easy to get to in English speaking. For big fish, you know, I'd still say Florida, day in, day out, is going to, an angler's going to see more big fish on average. Uh, it's still about as good as it gets. But there's other places that are uh, very good. Cuba is very good for bonefish. The Seychelles are fantastic. Uh, but, you know, as an example, those two places aren't that easy to get in and out of. And the Seychelles is about three days' travel each way. So, you know, quite a bit of logistics there to catch a fish. Bahamas, for for 80% of the people in the United States, is a one-day deal. And to even be fishing the same day as leaving home. What, what about uh, time of year for going down there? Are there are there better times of year? Can you go all year long? What, what's your recommendation there? Well, I would say yes, that you could go year-round, and because of some people's schedule um, and, you know, getting out of cold weather at home, you know, it seems like a great place to go from maybe after Christmas to mid-March or even before. But um, there is a chance that, our weather will blow across and, and influence 
the weather in the Bahamas. Generally speaking, it's pretty nice, but there is a couple of considerations. One, if a fisherman is down there April and May, you're getting the benefit of a high sun and longer days, so better visibility, easier to spot fish, generally a little less windy in the late spring and early summer. A lot of my guide friends tell me to come in the summer, summer, June, July, August. I've been to the Bahamas in June. It's not miserably hot or anything. Uh, you're always in the water, near the water. But um, they don't have as many fishermen that come in the summer. And it's pretty obvious why. It, there's things to do at home in the summer, and, and it's, it's just not as easy to think about a warm weather, warm water vacation. But um, I, I've been almost every month except midsummer. And you know what? I, maybe I'm a little bit lucky, but I've had great trips in January and February, occasional a uh, bit more wind, but as long as you can spot fish, that won't matter all that much. It's mostly having not too much cloud cover, rain, that sort of thing. So I'd say, you know, go whenever the, your schedule allows. Peak periods would be um, April, May, June. If you are going to some place that has CNN, then I'd, I would go during hurricane season. I don't think that's a big deal. You have plenty of warning. And fishing in the fall can just be incredible. So you know, I think most people do kind of load up in that April, May, June period, but I've had just had such good fishing in November and January and February that uh, it sure makes getting out of this weather all the better. And it makes me want to go right now. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. should I should uh, indicate, I, I faithfully reproduced the questions that were submitted for us, but uh, frankly... Uh, it's not uncommon that we find that uh, we've got a lady who's the, the fly fisher, and we may be looking for non-fishing uh, divergences for uh, her significant other. How about uh, just uh, from the standpoint of other types of fishing? Is there is there blue water fishing in the Bahamas, uh, uh, Brian, and charters and that kind of thing? Yeah, most of the bigger towns will have a, a blue water fisherman available. Some places uh, specialize in it, like Chub Key the south end of the Berry Islands, they have a marina that's famous for its troll fishing for uh, dolphin fish and um, wahoo and other billfish. And um, all the way down, Andros has access to very deep water, and pretty much all the island groups have a kind of a leeward and windward side. The leeward side would be the area with the flats protected from the wind, and the windward side generally is deeper. starts out with a large coral reef and then drops right off into fairly deep water and I know on Mayaguana and and uh, Great Inagua way down south many times people just wait for yellowfin tuna to be busting real close to town and they'll jump in boats and run out and fish for them so <clears throat> I'm not That's an expert on blue water fishing it's something I like to do because I don't mind having a little tuna back exactly. at the kitchen but yeah. uh <laughs> It's uh, it basically there's some good deep water fishing all over the place, and and, and it, it takes a little more work to find someone that'll go out in the smaller towns, but the bigger towns have uh, charters for that. About um, uh, we had several questions uh, come in about guides versus uh, do-it-yourself trips. What, what's your feeling on that? Can a can a guy go down there and 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 poke around himself, do some weight fishing, or rent boats, or? Or would you recommend a guide? Uh, and, and also, why don't you relate that to uh, a person's experience as well? Okay. Um, I'll uh, take that in chunks. First of all, 
years ago, I did a lot of fishing on my own, and I would wander around and either just do some rental car fishing on Eleuthera or Long Island, Cat Island, places like that. And it was fine. Caught quite a few fish. Uh, I'd probably catch as many fish with a day or two with a guide as I would all week by myself. But in the last few years, with the proliferation of more guides, more lodges, um, I think it's just kind of the, the right thing to do is to probably not fish, you know, near where guides are fishing, that sort of thing. Uh, there are places like uh, Mayaguana, which actually does promote some do-it-yourself fishing. And the place down there, there's only one place to stay. It's called the Baycaner Beach Resort. And, you know, we've been there, and, and they've got some canoes. You might have seen it in some of the magazines recently. And you basically get in a canoe, paddle around, pole around, and wade, or just take the hotel van to some of the back bays and wade for bonefish. So it's they're kind of promoting a, a little adventure, do-it-yourself kind of fishing trip. Most of the time you need a boat. Uh, you just It only takes one channel or some soft flats, and you're restricted on where you can go. Plus, really, with the expense of getting to the Bahamas and getting a place to stay, you know, saving up for the guide is probably money well spent. They're there every day, know the tides, where fish come and go from. They're really, you know, it's, it's just like steelhead fishing or going to New Zealand. It's really the only way to do it right. There are a couple of places to just wander around, but in my opinion, I think those days are kind of coming to an end, and it's probably better just to save a few extra bucks, hire the guide. And I know a lot of people like fishing on their own. They just like self-discovery, figuring out things on their own. And I'm one of those people, but when it comes to crossing deep water, getting to islands off the mainland, that sort of thing, well, a guide's the only way to go. I've actually spent so much time kind of beating, trying to beat the system a little bit that I was probably better off um, just saving the extra money and, and hiring a guide to, uh, from the day from day one. Now, not all guides work at big lodges. There's quite a few that I know that are independent. They might have just a little website or a network of friends that help them get trips. But they're in small towns uh, way up north on Andros or uh, out in Great Inagua, places off the beaten path a little bit. And once you find them, you might be the only guy around for 80, 90 miles. And, and they provide a great service by just being a single guide, no lodge, but have people stay in a nice little local hotel. And you can cut the cost a little bit doing that, too. And you're fishing one-on-one -on -one with a guide who's uh, incredibly familiar with the local water. So... Um, I can't remember all the parts of that question. <laughs> no, you've covered you've covered it quite completely. I think okay. I know from my experience in going to from the Rocky Mountains down into saltwater destinations, uh, especially with the islands and so forth. Just knowing the tides and when the water's moving and, and so forth becomes very difficult when you don't when, when you don't live there. Um, right. And and the guides seem to be a, a godsend in that respect and, and being able to know the local waters. So yeah, and the uh, tides can be really tricky in some places. There's a lot of blue holes, and and sometimes the tide will actually actually come up in the blue hole and then fan out from there. It's not just coming in from the east and moving west. It's uh, it can be very tricky and and sometimes even frustrating when you're by yourself. Right, right. Well, let's t take just a little break, and when we return, we'll talk more with Brian about fishing for bonefish in the Bahamas. 
So stay tuned, and we'll, we'll focus more now on bonefish themselves and, and how we, we can get catch those, those large bonefish. No matter where you like to fly fish, whether it's your local trout stream, a saltwater flat, or that once-in-a-lifetime destination, you can always rely on 3M scientific anglers for all your fly line needs. With the innovation of 3M behind it, Scientific Anglers offers mastery series fly lines for nearly every fly fishing technique and situation. Visit www.scientificanglers.com. That's scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's 800-430-5000 to find your nearest mastery series dealer. And tell them you heard it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Brian, let's talk about bonefish a little bit. Uh, maybe start out with a, a little bit about the life cycle of the bonefish and, you know, do they migrate, uh, you know, what do they eat, and things like that. Okay, this is coming from a fisherman's perspective, not a biologist. But, yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> from what I've seen, I've seen these big schools of bonefish kind of hover in a, in deeper water, and the guides seem to think that that's a sort of a spawning routine they go through and they'll even be up on the surface with their fins, their dorsal fin out of the water in deeper water, which is very unusual for a bonefish, which is almost always hugging the bottom. And uh, they call these, a local name in the Bahamas, that they're bibblers. And when they're bibbling, they're probably spawning, and that's a free water spawn. And I've seen photographs of, of immature bonefish, and they are a funny little larva-like, uh, almost, base creature looking thing with a big eye but that finally turns into a small fish and into a bonefish but when they're very small say under four inches I really don't know where they go they must hide somewhere that's safe whether it's in a reef whether it's in some real muddy areas or way back but I don't even see them in mangrove roots and places like that where you'd expect them but about eight inches you do see an occasional bonefish on a flat acting like a bonefish and it's probably big enough at that point to run from things and and uh, have a life. All bonefish are nervous all the time, whether they're big or small. They just they're eaten by barracuda. They're eaten by shark. And we think of bonefish as being incredibly fast, but barracuda and shark will easily run down a bonefish. So they start prowling around the flats, and I think they're basically creatures of habit. If the water temperatures meaning ideal maybe in the uh, low 80s to 84, 85. Uh, that is about right if there's a good food source. I tend to think they'll probably be there quite a while, although flats change just to shifting sand and storms and things like that. But in a stable area with uh, decent water temperatures, I think those fish will be fairly reliable. Now, they've tagged some fish that have traveled over 100 miles, so there has to be some sort of migration, especially if fish leave the banks of the Bahamas and get into the Straits of Florida or Florida Straits. Um, who knows where they might end up? I'm sure Bahama fish end up in Florida and maybe a few Florida fish end up in the Bahamas. But I think just through natural selection, there's going to be some fish wandering around. Um, I don't know if there's really such a thing as overcrowding. I'd like to find that place. But if there is, <laughs> fish are going to move on and, and get into a passage and explore that tide and end up on another island and I'm sure that happens quite a bit um, the food source you know they do kind of grub around the bottom in the sand in the mud and in the turtle grass it's hard to say 
exactly what bonefish are feeding on because they've got the crushers in the back of their jaws that crush up everything from crabs and shrimp, anything with a sh shell, uh, clams. And it's just about impossible to identify anything, but it's obvious when you see fish tail and, and then you walk over there and you just see tons of little dime to nickel-sized clams or any fly that's being retrieved is, is, in my opinion, kind of a fleeing response to the fish, which would be any of those little swimming crabs, shrimp, even small bait fish. A lot, not so much in the Bahamas, but in Belize, there's some islands that the primary food for the bonefish are these little glass minnows, So, and in Venezuela also. But, you know, if you've got a good environment, which is a, a healthy flat, and, and on the healthy flat you'll find stingrays, sharks, other fish, because there's things going on there. There's a food chain involved. If there aren't any sharks or stingrays, I usually move on because bonefish bring them and then all the other organisms bring the bonefish that we can't see. A lot, a lot of things are burrowed in the sand, and that's why you have that kind of round, blunt snout on a bonefish so they can flip over shells, probe for food with it, and, and that's basically why they tail is to get a little of their body out of the water where they where there's more gravity and that'll kind of push them down naturally as they can kind of wiggle in and get down and grub around for food and you know obviously tailing fish is sort of the ultimate in bone fishing a big school is, is fine when you need a fish but nothing beats single tailors on it like a turtle grass or sand flat because you know they're feeding <laughs> that's yes. the main criteria now yeah. when you say you mentioned sand gravel mud turtle grass uh, they they don't prefer any one of those areas any more than the other? It's, it's just a matter of what, what's in there that they can eat. So yeah, I think regionally there'll be uh, more of one than another on the uh, west side of Abaco in that big area called the Marls, which is a shallow mud bottom, mangrove clustered kind of complex. Uh, lots and lots of fish on a mud bottom, so it's all wade fishing, I mean, I'm sorry, all boat fishing. I've tried to find places to wade up there, but you might go, oh, 15 steps, and then it's back to a real soft bottom. Consequently, it's called the marls. And in there, those fish are finding things that burrow into the marl, probably different worms and things like that. Um, other flats, say in the berries, North Andros, um, off Long Island, real hard, beautiful, like walking down the sidewalk flats. And there may not be as much food in the flat, but there'll be food on or in the turtle grass. And in some of the back bays that we can't wade into that are too soft, but you definitely can pull a boat into, there'll be some mud mounds that are made by different crabs and clams and shrimps that move the bottom all over. And they're just, you know, it's kind of like a bird dog. Bird dog hunting into the wind is, is like a bonefish feeding into the tide. The scent of the bonefish's food is coming down tide. That's why they like feeding into the tide. And then they'll stop, poke around a little bit, tip up and tail, probe in there, and then sometimes they'll jolt off five or six feet to get something that jumped out of a hole or something like that. So, uh, you know, regionally just different types of bottoms. Uh, bigger fish, I really think, like soft bottoms and a little bit deeper water. Um, those mounds I was talking about, they sometimes will wear you out wading on your ankles, knees, and hips because they're all lumpy and bumpy. No two steps are the same. But I think those kind of half turtle grass, half soft bottom, moundy areas are a good place to look for big fish. 
an average depth uh, that bonefish feel most comfortable in? Uh, mentioned well, larger ones a little deeper. Yeah, and at times the big fish will get right up in the shallow banks with their dorsal fin out of the water uh, when they're as happy as they can be. And I don't think bonefish live a real happy life. They're constantly on the lookout for predators, and that skittish behavior is kind of what is intriguing about bonefish because they can be spooked with a bad cast or noisy waiting or that sort of thing. If they were easy, I mean, it'd just be a big mullet. So um, anyway, uh, as far as being comfortable, yeah, as, as comfortable as they can be, um, 10 inches to 16 inches is, is an ideal range for most fish to be able to travel in, feed in. Uh, on turtle grass, it might be four inches of grass, four inches of water, and that's an ideal uh, depth for them to be feeding and tailing. Bigger fish, at times, very, very shallow, but usually in a little bit deeper water. Is there anything predictable about the impact on their activity in terms of weather, wind, time of day, uh, in addition to the tides? Well, yeah, you're right. The tide really is the factor for most of uh, bonefish activity. That's really what gets them going. Uh, the time of day in which the tide is, um, you know, I, I am going to go out on a bit of a limb and say that mornings and evenings are still, whether it's just the nicest day of the fish, in my opinion, or not, but it, I do see fish get very active, especially tailing. When there's some tight movement in the morning and evening, you know, that low light, first light, or last light, and uh, I think they're, they're feeling pretty good in that low light, the low light conditions. I'm sure they feed all night during the right tides because I've walked flats and then um, have the tide go out. And then first thing in the morning uh, where we were wading, which was covered in water, there's feeding holes exposed everywhere. They make that almost like a a deer track shape hole in the ground. If you imagine just taking their head and, it, and embedding that down in the flat a little bit, it leaves that kind of horseshoe shaped hole in the ground where they've been feeding. And, and I've seen that from places that they just had to have been made at night. But, um, you know, bonefish don't like it when it gets too cold or too hot. When the flats get into the into the oh, probably 76 degree temperature, I think they're that's getting a little cool for them. If it approaches 90, which is possible, that's the time they start moving for deeper water. But in that low 80s to mid 80s, uh, they're pretty content to be on the flats. Lots of wind will affect fishing more than the bonefish probably. I think a lot of wind, you know, it's. I mean, I don't mind a little wind. There's usually places to get away from the wind a little bit or get it at a favorable angle. But it, it takes uh, the visibility out of spotting fish, which is the most important thing, and then it affects casting. But if you can't see them, then it's pretty much impossible. I don't know if the wind really affects a fish's habits unless it gets really, really rough. I don't like being bounced around or rolled around. And, uh, well, I've seen fish actively work through pouring down rain, but too much rain in some areas that brings a lot of fresh water out into the flat will push fish off also. So, yeah, there's a little bit of Murphy's Law involved in bone fishing and a lot more in permit fishing, but uh, generally speaking, I think uh, most trips to the Bahamas, even in the middle of the winter, you're going to have some very nice days, maybe a few iffy days and maybe even a couple bad days, but generally speaking, 
through a week-long period, you're going to find some perfect tides and good weather. How far up the, the creeks and into the mangroves do the bonefish go? Are they always on? Are they always on a shore that's exposed to the ocean, or, or do they actually get on the interior of these islands and, and coves and so forth? Yeah, they'll go quite a ways into the interior. Uh, there's so many areas that are linked up with little saltwater creeks that go into little lagoons or lakes or basins. And uh, and another thing to another area to fish in a lot of places that have old salt mining. Then there's salt flats that were man-made, and there were structures built and canals for water to come and go and, and then uh, have ponds evaporate. Well, most of those are all broken down now. There's still a big Morton salt factory in Great Inagua that's pretty amazing with mountains of salt. But most of the old primitive ones are dilapidated, and the tide rushes in and out of all these little flat basins, and the bonefish just love them. A little maze of ponds and things, but the islands that are long and skinny, like Eleuthera and Long Island, don't have much of an interior. Although Southern Long Island has a bunch of canals and an old salt-making area that has baby tarpon in them, and you can get to them on a bicycle. But you know, let, I'll let you go explore that one on your own. And uh, but Andros is really the main island with a big interior with the bites, which are cuts that run right through the island. And that's dotted with dozens of islands. And the west side of Andros is famous for exploring just exactly what you're talking about, lagoons and saltwater creeks that go way up into the interior into some very large lakes big enough to land the seaplane on. And bonefish cruise up through all of that country. In fact, that's one of my favorite places for a variety of fishing. And you need about three rods rigged up at all times. You are on the lookout for bonefish. There are a few permit in there, but there's also, on West Andros, lots of jacks, lots of big snapper, and some really big tarpon. Well, why don't we uh, come back to that, because you mentioned rods and tackle and so forth. So uh, when we return, let's talk more uh, with Brian about tackle, flies, and so forth, and what you need to do and what you need to have uh, out there fishing in the Bahamas. Have you ever dreamed about the classic action of a bamboo fly rod? Did you know it's possible to create your own bamboo rods? With the help of Power Fibers Online Magazine, you can do just that. Power Fibers is a magazine dedicated to crafting bamboo fly rods and telling the story of bamboo throughout the ages. From rod building techniques and stories about fishing bamboo rods to rod maker profiles and classic tapers, Power Fibers has it all. Check out our website, www.powerfibers.com. That's www.powerfibers.com for more information. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Brian O'Keefe about fishing for bonefish in the Bahamas. So, Brian, let's move on and talk about tackle. You said rig up with three rods if you're on the interior. Uh, Let's start out with just the bonefish. What, What do you need to take down there? We've got a lot of trout fishermen up here in the Rockies and across the country that would love to bonefish someday but haven't yet. Uh, what do they need to take? And then what are those extras that you, you alluded to a few minutes ago? Okay. I think most bonefish guides in the Bahamas would agree that the best all-round rod is a fast-action, eight-weight, fighting butt, oversized guides. And th- those are obviously available through any of the, any of the manufacturers. 
Um, some of the big fish guides on Andros like nine weights, which is understandable because they're fishing bigger flies and, and they cut the wind nicely. But all in all, an eight weight is a, a great bonefish rod, and, and so many of them are in the four-piece configuration now that travel so easily and cast just great. Then, you know, a lot of uh, people make a big deal about the reel, and I'm, I'm going to be on the side of, yes, you need a, a good reel to a very good reel. I've, I've seen a couple people go out with a trout reel and try to make it happen, and, and they, just, they just don't. I mean, they have to be a bar stock reel and anodized. There's a lot of different brands, that, and I wouldn't put a dollar amount on it, but you know, approaching 200 and up would be a good starting point. And I think most people that get into bone fishing aren't usually going to go once in their life. They're probably going to get hooked and want to go more and more. So the first-time investment, set yourself up with a fast action, good rod. And I don't mean it has to be $750, but a decent rod that has power, things that won't rust, a good reel, about 200 or more yards of backing. I still use 30-pound uh, Daycron backing. It seems to work just fine. I I don't have any problems with it. I've only lost one fly line from the backing breaking on coral. And um, and then for lines, I work for Scientific Angler. I use the Mastery Bonefish Taper and have for over 20 years. And uh, I usually bring an extra one along just in case someone has a problem with one of their lines. If someone in a group brings a, a, you know, a trout line from Montana, they just don't work. Get gummy and the, they're slow in the guides and and uh, really the price of a fly line compared to a whole trip is less than a tenth of one percent and that's sometimes to me the most important part of the whole outfit is a good line. Now if a person is living in from the Carolinas south and maybe into the Texas Gulf where there's a lot of redfish, um, the new Mastery Redfish Taper um, works great as a bonefish line and also back home literally on a daily basis for redfish. Uh, I'm I'm of the uh, longer leader persuasion, so I use a bonefish leader that's 12 feet long usually, unless it's a howling gale, then I'll shorten up a little bit. But I like a long leader. I think you've got you know wide open spaces, presentation's key. So I go with a about 12 foot leader to 10 to 12 pound tippet, and then I usually add on a little tippet, sometimes fluorocarbon in in uh, eight to 10 pounds. And um, on super calm days when it's not much tide, I'll, I'll extend that tippet to four feet and fish about a 16-foot leader. It sounds kind of long, but it's really not that big of a deal with a heavier rod. On super windy days, I'll go to a still you know, a nine-foot leader, very nice-sized leader, but a little more punch to it. Sometimes the fluorocarbon leaders are a real stiff leader that turns over flies real well. For wade fishing, I almost only use regular mono leaders with some fluorocarbon tippet. For boat fishing, I'll use an all fluorocarbon leader and tippet. The reason being is when you're walking along and you've got your fly in the ready position, you've got a little bit of line, say 8, 9, 10 feet of line out the rod to get ready to make a cast. The leader that sinks like fluorocarbon will hang up on the bottom and you have to backtrack, get it off, and it just takes you out of, out of sync from scanning the water for fish. But in a boat, it doesn't really matter. You want, might want that extra sink since you're casting from an elevated position. But uh, rod reel and line, eight weight 
good reel, at least 200 yards of backing, a good bonefish-specific line, and uh, good, strong, heavy butt leaders. Uh, going to things that are on your body, oh, there's so many good, uh, lightweight, quick-drying shirts, shorts, and pants. It's um, just endless. Um, Zip-off pants are really nice to have, especially if there a few bugs come out or you're feeling a little too much sun. But uh, I always bring more than one hat. I like uh, a big coverage hat, something that puts out a lot of shade, especially for the first few days. But if it gets windy or it's a little overcast, I'll go to a, a flat-styled hat with a long bill and a little protection for the neck. And then, you know, if I've been around, been in the sun a bit, like sometimes fishing just a regular um, ball cap. But generally, uh, I'll have some neck and ear protection and a long bill. Sunglasses, everybody knows how important they are. And, uh, you know, if you're going to really get into this and you think you know, vision is important, especially seeing it and protecting your vision, then you know, the Maui Gym type glasses are really hard to beat. Um, anything sort of below that range, you're pretty much buying on price. But uh, they may, might look expensive in the shops, but in the long run, you take good care of them and they'll really take care of you. And then uh, just some of the little things, you know, whether it's a flat pack, like a little fanny pack is fine. Some fishing shirts have enough pockets on them that you don't need the pack very often, especially if there's a boat nearby. So tippet, extra leader, um, some nippers, that sort of thing, a small box of flies, easily fits into most fishing shirts. If you're going to wander quite a ways from the boat or do a lot of wading, then a fanny pack with a water bottle, and some storage for a Ziploc bag with a little point-and-shoot camera, a little snack, and then the usual nippers, hemostats, um, tippet, and that sort of thing. Um, I still wear booties quite a bit, even though there's a lot of flats boots out now, and uh, they look fine. And for some conditions, I'm actually I'm going to go get a pair because there's some uneven terrain that wears your feet out, and and I think. Sometimes those boots are really, really nice. I wear a, um, a booty from Chota Boots that's got a super thick sole. It zips up. It's neoprene, but it really keeps the dirt, mud, and sand out. And uh, so with just an old pair of gym socks and those booties, I'm good to go. But I notice on long trips that sometimes having a little more support in the bottom of the booty than the sole, probably have a little less fatigue. And there are some very rough, flats. I've never had a problem with puncturing or anything like that, but sometimes when you're crossing that broken rock, they call it that limestone that's very, very sharp, and fields of broken shells and things, um, that boot protection is pretty nice. Um, I, don't, I, don't know, I really try to keep things simple. I think that's sort of the beauty of a trip. I always take more than I need, and I end up using so few flies usually it's ridiculous compared to how many I bring. But uh, um, I generally bring an extra pair of sunglasses, extra hats, things like that, just because one freak accident, and you don't want to spend five days on the flat without glasses. It sounds as though uh, what you're saying is, is pretty much what, what we'd use anywhere in the country, with the exception of the lightweight cover-up kind of, uh, you know, shirts and pants that you might wear. Yeah, but and uh, the rest is pretty much uh, what you take anyway. With oh, yeah, you'd always have a raincoat, and I'm not talking about what some people advertise as a flats jacket, which is very lightweight, easy to pack. Um, 
I went that route, and I've decided I, I pretty much bring a fairly heavy-duty um, raincoat, and not a wading jacket, but one that comes down to their thighs, um, like a backpacker-style jacket, but or even a ski-type jacket, one that's pretty tough. I mean, when it's a thunderstorm and you're in a moving boat, there's probably um, not many times where you need a more waterproofness than that. I mean, only riding a motorcycle in the rain would be more... Uh, impact from the rain so I take a pretty heavy duty coat uh, people might think it's kind of funny at first but the lightweight flimsy little ones they just get beat up Brian when you talked about your your leader and tippet are there any particular knots that you use in your joins I, I think the trout crowd tends to be a little bit uh, leery when they hear about bimini twists and that sort of thing yeah I think uh, uh, trout fishermen can get by with all standard knots um, I do a, a regular nail knot to my fly line from the butt section of the leader leave about six inches and then use my tie fast tool and then tie another one so I use back to back nail knots which is just sort of an insurance policy on any um, lines I use over eight weight whether it's um, steelhead tarpon anything I just like that back to back nail knot distributes the pole so much nicer. I've never really had a leader pop off the tip of a fly line, but it just looks good. I don't know. Maybe it's a little confidence. And then leader to tip it, um, I think whatever a person's comfortable with, if it's mono to mono, then the uni knot, the blood knot, or the uh, double surgeons is just fine. Fluorocarbon to mono is a little different story. I've had pretty good luck with... Um, triple surgeons, and sometimes with a uni knot, sometimes not, depending on the materials being put together, and uh, I know people that do loop-to-loop -loop from line to tippet, from fluorocarbon to mono, so, or from mono to fluorocarbon, so um, there are really no scary knots in there, I like a loop knot on my fly, so I tie a uni loop knot, just as I would to tie on a streamer, it gets more action on the fly, it has a little more freedom to swing and dive around. Well, you, you mentioned uh, how sometimes you you bring way more flies than you need. Uh, what kind of specific flies would you recommend that uh, a bone fisherman have in their arsenal? Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm going to break it down a little bit into, say, three styles of flies, but I'm going to list the style of the fly as being the third most important thing. To me, the most important thing is the weight of the fly, so it can either uh, sink extremely slowly, medium, or fast. As you can imagine, the turtle grass flat, lowish, lowish tide, and bonefish kind of moving right through that. A fast-sinking fly is going to drop and hit the bottom and just hang up. So there's times when I like a, an unweighted fly, lots of rabbit hair, rubber legs, stripes, a lot of attention grabbing, I call it an adjective fly, just tie a little bit of everything on the thing and it'll hover, kind of puff up in the wave action and only sink a little bit because it's only got about a three inch window to be able to be seen and retrieved in. Now in a deeper flat, see an average sand flat of eight to 14 inches, bead chain eyes are just fine. Um, if there's a lot more tide, then maybe small lead-eyed flies to get down and keep the fly down. And, uh, and then deeper water, 
medium to larger lead eyes to get down and keep the fly down. So to me, I, I break all my favorite fly categories into no weight, medium weight, and heavy weight. After that, I go to a category of being uh, of importance of being size, and um, you know, kind of a smallish fly, medium size, and big. Um, real clean white sand flats. I like a more sparse fly, one with a little bit of flash, but not too much. A little bit of movement, but again, not too much. And that's kind of in the Charlie type category, one that's uh, not going to have a long rabbit strip or something on it, but just a very common sparse fly. Then kind of going up into the gotcha category and some of the bigger, hairier flies that have rubber legs on them. Um, either rabbit strip, marabou, a lot more movement. And then large flies, and I'm, I'm not talking about making flies on larger hooks. They can all use the size uh, 6 hook, but just more material. And then the bigger flies would be the, the quan-type flies, the toad, um, ones that have long striped tails on them. Uh, big flies that they get up to about 3.5 inches long. And again, some rubber legs. A little bit of flash, but not too much. And those are flies are for big fish, whether it be Florida, Bahamas, or anywhere. Big fish, uh, you're going to look at that, see it, make the effort to eat it. A real big bonefish tailing may not give a hoot about a little crazy Charlie, but if it's a big, hairy thing that looks like a meal, it's just like uh, a brown trout in Montana, a big fly, big fish. But then I get into fly categories, and I'll I'll just kind of roughly break them down into Charlie style, the original Crazy Charlie, in some colorations of tan, cream, uh, pink and white, pink and brown. Then um, there's variations, of course, from the Charlie into the puffs and that style of fly. And then if you get more into um, the gotcha style, which is a, probably the most popular fly right now, um, it's got a little pink head on it, bead chain eyes, kind of a craft wing, ginger-colored wing, and a pearl body. Well, you can take that fly and throw on the adjectives, throw on some rubber legs, throw on a little bit longer wing, put stripes on it, um, do a few things like that. You've got the kind of intermediate-sized fly for what I think is good for all over the Bahamas, and um, they're big enough for big fish. They're medium-sized, so even on clean flats, they're not too um, offensive. And then getting into the last category of, of the big fish flies, and that would be the quans, the toads. And those are, you know, have a kind of antron-type head on them. Almost, you know, almost a streamer, really. And in larger sizes, they are used for tarpon, and, and they're really good for snapper with heavy lead eyes on them. So uh, small, medium, large in three sink rates, and you can cover the bases. The first two, the small smaller and the medium, the Charlies and the Gotchas, those are all kind of in the shrimp or crab kind of categories, aren't they, as far as yeah, accumulated? I, I think so, kind of shrimpy. Um, crab patterns, I think crab, to bonefish and permit, I mean, they just love them. They go, they're stupid for them. If you watch someone fish live crabs to either of those fish, well, you just get bored, really. It's so easy. So they do love crabs. So I should say that there is kind of a crabby element in, in some patterns, too. I, I personally don't fish a lot of crab patterns for bones. I definitely do for permit, but I generally do uh, 
more of the gotcha style, the hairy kind of quan type flies. But um, you know, the uh, the crab patterns. I don't know. They just they're they're they're. I have better luck with them when I get the fish's attention, drop them to the bottom, and leave them. Let the fish come to it, tip up on it, and then do a slow kind of even strip strike. If they're on, they're on. I guess I kind of like the the cast of flight. It's more of that fleeing deal where you get the fish's attention, keep stripping it, get the fish coming to the fly, tracking the fly, then maybe give it a little slack to hover it and have the fish take it, turn, and then strip strike. And I guess I just kind of like that style of fishing. Yeah, I think we should point out here that most of the books that are available for saltwater fly tying uh, cover all these different categories you've described, and there are also a, a bunch of very fine websites on the Internet uh, which go into quite a lot of detail in terms of uh, tying some of these saltwater patterns. One of our people uh, asked, Gary, says he's planning on tying a few hundred bonefish flies over the next month. <laughs> um, and it sounds like he doesn't need to tie that many, but um, he also wanted to know how important is the nylon hook guards on, on the flies? Do you use those? Um, I would say 25% of my flies have them, and I prefer the double loop uh, of nylon for a weed guard. I'm not a big fan of the, just the little thing that pokes up. Um, they they kind of work on a fly that's settled to the bottom, and it'll it'll pivot on that point, and uh, that's fine. But a retrieved fly uh, that's ticking along the bottom or in the grass, I've I've seen the, the looped um, weed guard to work a little bit better. And, and you don't lose as many flies as you do trout fishing. As no, I, I, think. I very rarely, I mean, I'll have flies get beat up from fish and unhooking fish, but every once in a while, you know, of course, you lose a fish in the mangrove or one will break you on a rock, but I don't lose too many flies, you know, obviously not to trees and snags and things like that. You can walk everywhere to get everything, but... Um, and that's why I still use mostly um, stainless hooks. Uh, I mean, if you made the argument that if you break a fish off and it has a stainless hook in its mouth, it will be there a long time, and that's true. But uh, really a small percentage of fish swim off with a fly. In fact, while I'm on that subject, I'll just throw a little tip. I see a lot of fishermen who hook a fish, and if it's heading for the mangrove, they generally try to put a lot of pressure on the fish, either from the rod or from the drag on the reel, to try to slow down that fish or make it stop before it gets to the mangrove, well, they usually do get to the mangrove. But if it's on a super tight line, anything it touches will break the leader. I generally, if I'm going to lose the war, will then go to a complete slack drag, give the fish some slack. And a lot of times they just peacefully stop, slow down, kind of figure out what's going on. You might be able to get into a better position, fight from a different angle and get the fish out. But if it does shoot through the roots, I just give it complete slack line, thread the rod through the roots, get on the other side, make contact with the fish, and then it's battle royale again. Great tip. You've kind of covered the, the stainless steel aspect of the flies. Uh, I've, I've heard an argument that, that people have made that, well, gee, you don't tie a fly to last forever. Do you care if it corrodes a little bit? As long as you can keep the points sharp, you'll spend a lot less money tying your own flies. What do you think of that? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm still kind of in the stainless. I've thought about those other options, but really salt water and in some areas that are so salty, I mean really salty water, they really chew up a hook pretty fast. And I, I think 
any residual salt will just keep eating those hooks up, whether it's on the box itself or in some of the material on the fly. And um, yeah, I'm, I would lean towards the stainless hook still. Maybe just while we're on that, that little bit of the subject, how do you treat your rod and reel and your flies after a day on the salt? Well, you definitely need to wash everything off, starting with you know, the rod from top to bottom. And then I generally will pull all my line off the reel into just probably the lawn or into the floor of a hotel or wherever we're staying and, and uh, get into the backing pretty far, then put the reel in the, in the good fresh water, really spray it down well, get some salt off the backing, definitely, of course, salt off all the parts in the reel. And then if it's a real salty area, I'll even add a little line cleaning to a napkin or something and reel the line back on with a little bit of, uh, I use the SA line cleaning uh, material and pad. And uh, so the next day I've got a, a fresh line ready to go. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to calibrate salt in the water, but some areas that may not have quite as much tidal action just seem so salty that even the very best lines um, slow down a little bit, and either just a quick wipe or with some fresh water on a T-shirt or a little application of some line dressing, and you're really back in the business because it's all about seeing the fish and making a quick, accurate cast to your target. And when the line's dragging through the guides, it's uh, not working for you. Well, it's time to, to take a break, gentlemen. When we return, we'll be fielding live questions both by phone and, and through the Internet. Uh, we found in the past that most of our questions are coming through the Internet nowadays. The phone seems to be kind of an archaic device, but we still use it <laughs> for certain functions. So, um, uh, Don? The Federation of Fly Fishers is involved in several important projects in addition to those previously mentioned on this show. One is the Family Ties Program, wherein volunteers work with junior and senior high school students to help develop fly fishers and stewards of the environment. Another is Healing Waters, a joint program with Trout Unlimited, which teaches fly tying and fly fishing to wounded veterans. The Federation has also partnered with Stripers Forever, working on the East Coast and in the halls of Congress to push for game fish status for striped bass. For more information, go to the Federation website, www.fedflyfishers.org, or click on the Federation link on our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Join your local fly fishing club and join the Federation of Fly Fishers. Get involved in these important projects. Okay, it's time for our live question and answer session. And during this time, you'll be able to ask questions over the Internet or on our teleconference call, uh, your choice. If you're listening to our Internet broadcast and like to ask a question of Brian, just go to our homepage, www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of Brian that says, click here to ask Brian O'Keefe your most important question. Just fill out the form and send us your question. We'll receive it, we'll receive it immediately online, and we'll be able to view it and ask Brian those questions. If you want to call in by phone to ask Brian a question, dial 212-990-8000, and then enter PIN 6913 and then the pound sign. That's 212-990-8000. And the PIN number is 6913-POUND. If you're on the phone already, just hold on, and we'll open up the lines in just a second. Before we open up our phone lines to accept questions, we'll need for uh, all of our phone callers to mute their phones, and this will help us eliminate any background noise. Uh, so if you are on a phone, 
Uh, you can mute your phone by pressing star six. Uh, so if you're out there now, go ahead and do that. Uh, press star six and, and mute your phone. When you want to ask a question, press star six again and your phone will be unmuted. After you ask your question, uh, press star six again and mute your phone up. Uh, Don, um, I think we're unmuted at the moment, uh, so is there anyone out there on the phone lines right now that uh, has a question for us? Doesn't look like it. So let's, um, let's uh, go on to some of the questions. We do have some online questions that I'm looking at here. Uh, and then we'll also talk about strategies and techniques as well. Uh, some of these go back to the, the start here, Brian. Um, one question is, has he, have you ever fished out of Rickman's on Sandy Point in Abaco? Yes, I have. In fact, uh, I fished with Ricardo Burroughs, the Rick part of Rickman, uh, before he had a lodge and uh, always enjoyed fishing with him a lot. He had a great boat. He knew the area really well. And Sandy Point is a beautiful little town at the very southwest point of Abaco. And back then, the road was so bad to Marsh Harbor that hardly anybody ever went to Sandy Point, even people from Abaco. It was potholes and just terrible. And now it's all paved, and uh, the airport in Marsh Harbor gets a lot of people, and there's a little airstrip in Sandy Point for charters. At uh, Rickman Lodge is beautifully located just on the edge of a small flat and then a channel that after fishing we would wade out on with long leaders and clousers and fish for what we just called mystery fish because you never know if it was a bonefish, a small permit, jack, snapper, shark, or cuda that you were going to catch. And then we also fished for what we called the unlandables, just fish that would hit and take off and that was it. They'd just head out and be gone. Very exciting fishing for right out in front of a lodge. But um, Rickman Lodge has a bunch of good guides, brand new boats, beautiful location, easy to get to, and the possibility of big fish there is excellent because you can run over to Gorda Key, which used to be a really neat little wild island with big fish and a little secret lagoon inside of it, but Disney bought it and turned it into a theme park for cruise ships. The last time I fished it, I got kicked off of it, but they still boat fish on the back side. And then up to Moores Island, which I mentioned earlier, is a place for big bonefish, and um, it really feels like you're kind of going back in time up there, but I'm a big advocate of Rickmon Lodge. Great. Well, there's another another question from Pat Brazil and, and the Michigan Fly Fishing Club. Uh, Pat would like to know, uh, what's your most favorite bohemian out island to fish and why and i don't it's know tough question as i answer that or think about it i'd like to mention that there's a, a website um, that does represent a lot of the small islands and lodges um, and it is the out island promotion board and you might google it with bahamas out island promotion board and a lot of the little Outfitters and guides that can't afford huge web pages and brochures and go to sports shows are represented on that web page, and it's a good way to find the little places. And for me in the Bahamas, wow, um, we just finished a trip to Mayaguana doing the canoes and sort of self-guided thing, and that's an incredibly fun trip. It's very well-priced. Now, a lot of these out-islands are not as easy to get to. Um, it's a hour and a half flight from Nassau to Mayaguana, so it's a pretty long ways out there. 
Um, Great Inagua is another fairly large island. About half of it is a national park because there's at times 50,000 flamingos on this great big lake on the interior of the island. It's one of the largest concentrations of flamingos in the world. And then um, in that lagoon, they have uh, medium-sized tarpon, some permit and snook. On the outside, out on the flats, it's good bone fishing. And there's really only about one guide on the whole island, and that's Izard Cartwright. So fishing in some of those places are a real treat because you get to know people real well, and the towns are small, and you feel like you really you know, have gone on a trip to another place. I... Uh, I guess I don't have a favorite spot. I like so many places. I haven't I haven't been to the Ragged Islands yet, Duncan Town and Ragged Island. I've I've always wanted to go there. It's real remote. You haven't been somewhere in the Bahamas? <laughs> yeah, the Ragged Islands is about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it, huh? But um, well, well uh, Pat also had some questions, and I wanted to get into some strategies and techniques here anyway. But he also asked uh, when casting the bones, what's your stripping technique? Uh, when the fly's in front of the fish, do you use short, long, or combination thereof? Um, What's your approach? Well, bonefish have body English, and if they're kind of wiggling fast and really in pursuit of the fish, uh, you can actually tell they're they're very interested, they're excited, they want to get it. And at that point, I generally put a little slack on the fly, let it settle. Either they'll take it on the sink or take it off the bottom. Um, I'm not a real fast stripper. I like to get their attention do a kind of irregular strip, and then once they're pretty interested in it, give them a chance to eat it instead of just keep moving as they get closer and closer. And every once in a while, as you know, a fish will just track that fly right in to leaders clicking in the guides, and they'll still take it. They're just so in focused on the fly. But generally speaking, I like to make a accurate cast, get their attention, a few strips, get them following, and then drop it, and let them have a chance to pick it off the bottom or get it on the sink. Don, you have, you have some questions there? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Uh, we've had a couple folks who've uh, wondered if you have tips for spotting bonefish. Uh, they've heard that uh, that's a difficult uh, art and, and wonder what recommendations you might make. Uh, and, you know, in the list of important skills for bonefishing, I would say spotting fish would be equal with casting. Um, guides at times on, in, on windy days or low light will see fish that you can't and they'll say you know bonefish two o'clock 35 feet cast and and um, that's kind of a good way to get dialed into a fish but it's not quite as rewarding as seeing it yourself even with the help of a guide tracking the fish seeing if it's going left to right leading at three feet getting the sink making the cast doing it all but seeing fish is a never-ending problem and uh, even people who've done it a lot still and stare and strain to see fish. And that's because if it's a beautiful white flat and the sun's high, well, you can see fish literally from 200 yards away. But when it's a lower light and they're not tailing or it's windy or deeper or a dark turtle grass bottom, boy, they just vanish and they're not called the ghost of the flats for nothing. So a couple of things to look for. First and most obvious would be a tailor. Second most obvious would be nervous water or a wake. Any pattern in the chop of the water that's different is going to be caused by bonefish or a stingray or a shark, so it's worth investigating. After that, there's kind of a, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a combination of seeing the shape of the fish, 
the color of bonefish, that kind of greenish gray, with movement. And you just kind of, something catches your eye, and you see that move, and then, aha, uh -huh, that's it. You know the direction it's going and all that. I've been out on dark days where, literally, you don't look at 65, 70 feet. You'll never see a fish out there. You're looking at 15 to 20 feet. And it, sometimes I even really tell myself to keep looking for their eyes because that big, dark eye is a spot moving across the water. And several times I've seen a spot. It moved, made the cast two feet in front of that spot, and had a fish on in really tough conditions. Generally speaking, people that spot fish, whether it's trout fishing, steelheading, or that thing, do pretty well spotting bonefish. But at times, it's just plain tough because of uh, angle of the sun, wind, waves. But I would put spotting fish, you get better and better with each trip. In fact, generally speaking, you'll talk to anyone who goes on their first trip, and they'll be kind of frustrated the first day or two and say, man, I just didn't see a thing. But on the last two days of the trip, they'll say, hey, I saw some fish before the guide. And, um, and it's just a skill that gets better with time. We have a question from uh, Joe up in Connecticut who wonders how important mastering the really long cast is before they undertake saltwater bone fishing. And, and also, Brian, did you say earlier that the winds are less of a problem early and late in a day? I don't think I mentioned that, but generally speaking, the wind does build up in the afternoon. As far as casting far, I think that's a bit of a myth. Um, but distance casting has a place, but usually in that the techniques used for casting far, double haul, high line speed, carrying some line, some of those techniques are used in wind casting. So having a good distance cast will generally mean that you can cast into the wind well also. So I, I would have to say practice distance casting because those skills will help on windy days. But Let's take just a typical situation. You're either wading or on the bow of a boat, and you see a fish at 75, 80 feet. No, no reason to cast, in my opinion. They're kind of zigzagging along. It helps to watch them for just a little bit, see if they're always just zigzagging or if they're going to smell a spot a while, then travel, then stop and travel, and just kind of figure out what that fish is up to or group of fish. Then wait till they're in range. I think an accurate... Um, and, and the cast with nice presentation is, is better than a long bomb, um, really for no apparent reason. Long casts aren't as accurate, and they're not as soft. So my general school of thinking is kind of learn the habit of the fish, and that might take just two or three seconds if it's milling around, if it's cruising fast. Then you can judge your casting target. It gives you a second to kind of comprehend the depth of the water, how strong is the tide, that means how far you have to lead the fish so you get the fly sinking um, to the fish. Obviously, if it's a deeper uh, flat and there's quite a bit of tide, casting one foot in front of the bonefish won't do anything. By the time the fly sinks, it'll be past the fish, three or four feet. So just a couple seconds to kind of ascertain the conditions, take a deep breath, and then relax. Take a, You want to get your fly to the target fairly soon, but nice, smooth, stroke, make a loop, don't let everything fall apart in the heat of battle. You know, still make that nice, sweet loop that you make when you practice cast. And then I want to get out there pretty quick. So I shoot line on my front cast, shoot line on the back cast, and then maybe my final cast, I get on track for my target, 
and then just ease up a skosh so my line lands a little softer, fly turns over and drops without a big whack. And um, that's a lot going on. That's probably like stepping up on a golf tee and making a perfect swing and, and a long drive every time. I mean, it's pretty hard to do. gets a little exciting. People are pointing to fish, saying things. Uh, you're on the spot. But, again, take a breath, ascertain the conditions, the, the direction of the wind. You can cast right at your target. If the wind's blowing pretty hard left to right, the drift of the line and the fly is going to move it four or five feet. So those are all things that, that kind of come into making that final cast. And, and uh, generally speaking, after you've caught one or two, your casting just improves immensely because the heat's off, you're relaxed, you're making those nice, soft presentations. And um, so to make a long story short, I'd rather make a medium distance cast of 40 to 55 feet or closer if the visibility's not great, and make it a quick cast but with a soft presentation at the end and um, stay loose and enjoy it. One of the things that... Um hear about a lot is, of course, spooking the fish, and that they are spooky fish, and you've made mention of that several times. Uh, if you do spook a fish, do you, do you have any chance at that same fish again, or do you move on to, to look for other fish? What, what do you do after you spook some, some fish? Well, you, you shake off the abuse that you're taking from your friends and the guides, <laughs> and then if it's an incoming tide in the morning, a lot of times those fish will blow up. I mean, with a huge eruption of water and fly off 50, 60 feet and then calm down, go back to rooting around and turn into a bonefish again. Um, other times they're gone for the day. And uh, that's just a fact of life because, you know, bonefish don't get many second chances, especially with cuda and shark around all the time. So, um, yeah, if it's a school, uh, they sometimes will blow up, make a lot of white water, and then move in a big semicircle. And then after about 70, 80 feet, start settling back down. And then at that point, leave them alone for a little bit, wade around, get the sun and direction of the wind favorable, and then make another cast. You mentioned sharks and barracudas. Uh, and I've, I've, I've heard that they can be a real threat when, when you're retrieving and uh, releasing bonefish. Is, is that true? Oh, definitely. You know, I will never take a cast at a bonefish if there's a decent-sized cuda or shark nearby. Uh, and even some, I don't, haven't seen too much of a shark, but I've seen barracuda get smart to anglers and even dog you around a little bit. And um, that's when you need to pick up a conch shell, chuck it at a barracuda or shark, and get it way off the flat. Um, and that's why I usually carry a pretty good-sized popper right on my front pocket with a piece of about 12 inches of wire leader and a little slip knot tied in it so I can hook it over my bonefish fly in a matter of seconds and get it out there. Because sometimes the best defense is an offense. <laughs> hook it, or at least get it to strike, and after a little tussle over there, it comes off or it's landed, and that, that fish is not going to be a problem. But a hooked bonefish that excites a shark or barracuda you got to really go into hyperspeed there to save the life of that fish. And what will normally happen with a guide is they'll rev up the motor, they will throw their pulling pole, um, throw a, a can of pop at a fish, or chase on after them and get them away because uh, the bonefish has about 10 seconds once they're spotted. 
to get away. They might make a run, but there's just no way they're going to get away. And even if you break one off and think that that's going to do it, it won't. The, the bonefish and the shark will find that fish and get it just because it's a little tired out. Um, a released fish is, uh, if it's real sharky, real barracuda country, a released fish is going to have a tough time if you don't take it back into some mangrove and release it where it has a little bit of protection. But just sliding one off and moving on, and if you've seen two or three sharks in an area, even though you don't see one right then, I don't know what it is, but I've watched sharks track a fish like a good dog, and they'll track a fish until they find it, and then it's an explosion and a red spot in the ocean. So um, uh, most guides and experienced bone fishermen will assist in any kind of situation that has a shark or bone or a shark or barracuda involved. And what we do when we wade flats, we'll find a couple shells or a piece of rock or old coral and put it in the fanny pack or a pocket and just keep it there because uh, a big splash next to almost any fish will scare them off the flat. And that's a nice little insurance policy to have with you. Brian, we'd be remiss uh, having a professional photographer on our hands if we didn't ask for some tips on uh, photographing these fish or on a saltwater trip. You said that you carry a point-and-shoot camera in your fanny pack. Uh, what kind of tips have you got for us? Well, um, I usually have a, a hard case also if it's a boat situation, and in the boat um, and in that case would be my regular Canon gear and several lenses and flash and all that sort of thing. Out on the flats, so though, for, for me and for just people that want to take snapshots of their trip, these new point-and-shoot digital cameras are just amazing. Um, they're not perfect, but for convenience, they're pretty hard to beat. Um, one thing I, I really like about them is how fast they are. Um, you don't have to keep fish around a long time and get ready when the fish has just landed, snap, quick picture, and a release. But um, one thing that is hard to do with a point-and-shoot camera is add a polarizing filter, which really does make the flats look nicer, in my opinion. The water colors are glare-free. The sky is bluer. It just, I think when you wear a polarized glass to fish with, then a polarizing lens on your camera works kind of in the same way and at the same time. When you don't need your glasses, you don't need the polarizer. But I like different angles. Um, a lot of my stuff is up high from, say, the polling platform or from really down low at water level, maybe a couple inches above the water. I just think any any picture that is taken from standing straight up at five foot something to six feet, well, that's where we see every day. And that angle or perspective is kind of boring because we see it every waking hour. So to get either really low or really high it gives us just a new angle, new something to look at. It tends to be more interesting. And uh, I'm also a believer, even though I don't do it enough and I have to keep reminding myself to, is that to use flash even midday to take the shadow off an angler's face if he's holding a fish. Um, try to direct the flash right up under the hat and not get much on the fish since they're bright enough already that the extra flash will sometimes wash them out. But uh, explore a few angles, use the flash, hold it real still, and uh, be prepared so you can get a good, fast shot done and not um, torture the fish too long. Is there any particular way uh, you recommend to hold the bonefish? I know, you know, with, for instance, northern pike and so forth, there's certain ways that the guides like you to hold them. Uh, any recommendations there or as you well, put a trout? Or? Yeah, pretty much a standard... Um, tail and belly 
hold, and you don't need to grip them very much. I'd like to just use, say, if I'm holding the bonefish with the index finger and thumb of my left hand around the skinny part of its tail, pretty much just support the fish with the right hand. You don't need to grip onto them. They're, they're not they're going to thrash around as much as some other fish. And if they had that long fight and they're pretty tuckered out and you want to revive them, sometimes you can just put them in the water put them down on the bottom and rub the top of their head and it kind of hypnotizes them or something and they go very docile and they'll just stay there and rub their head a little bit and they'll breathe and they'll get their strength back. That's one good way to keep them around without handling them and to get their strength back so they can go back out and join their other bonefish friends without wandering around and being dead tired. But uh, um, I still like fish pitchers and bonefish right and maybe an inch above the water, just a quick shot like that. If you get them up too high and they do thrash and they slam into the water or the flat, it doesn't do the fish any good. So just an inch above the water, quick shot and release. Well, it, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up for this show. Um, when we return, we'll be drawing for a scientific angler's fly line, the mastery fly line, so stay tuned to see if you win. Tonight we're announcing the official launch of the Ask About Fly Fishing Global Events Calendar. Fly fishers are long overdue for a comprehensive international events resource. The events calendar is a place organizations, clubs, fly shops, and speakers can all list events related to fly fishing. Whether it's a club meeting, fly tying and casting demo, conservation project, fly tying symposium, or whatever, your event can be listed on the events calendar and receive additional exposure. The Ask About Fly Fishing website is viewed in over 130 countries. Now that's global exposure. Whether you're making a business trip from Buffalo to Big Sky or traveling internationally, you'll know in advance what's happening in the fly fishing world near your destination. And you won't miss out on those events or special projects near your home either. Encourage your fly shop as well as clubs and organizations to list their events on the Ask About Fly Fishing events calendar. It's absolutely free, and we'll be picking one event to announce on each of our shows. The events calendar will be available Monday, May 8th, and you just click on the links uh, for the events calendar at the bottom of our website pages. That's www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and uh, we'll send out a reminder email on Monday regarding this launch. Well, now it's time to give away that 3M Scientific Angler's Mastery Fly Line. And in case you're wondering how we do this, we just press a button and up pops a name. Our computer program randomly selects someone from this show's registration database. So if you haven't registered by now, it's too late. Uh, if you didn't register tonight, make sure you do so on our next show. You, you never know what we might be giving away. So if you're the lucky winner tonight, we will contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your gift. So uh, here we go. Uh, pick the winner, and the winner is uh, Ken Kaufman from California in the USA. So Ken Kaufman, if you're on the line, you, you did uh, win uh, the Scientific Angler's Mastery Fly Line, and we'll be contacting you after the show. So congratulations. Well, we know he'll enjoy that. Brian, we want to thank you for uh, uh, just a terrific uh, introduction to the Bahamas and bone fishing. Uh, we really appreciate you being with us tonight. And uh, we thank you for taking the time to educate us on this uh, fascinating subject and hope that you'll join us in the future. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. You guys are uh, have a great show, and feel free to call me anytime. Great. Great. Thanks a lot, Brian. And our one note here about our next broadcast will be on May 17th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And our guest speaker will be Kelly Gallup, and he will be answering questions about fishing streamers for trophy trout. It's going to be an exciting show, so don't miss it. Uh, Kelly does some different things that you may not have tried, so you'll, you'll want to make sure you listen in on this. We would also like to thank the uh, 3M Scientific Anglers, Royal Gorge Anglers, uh, Power Fibers, and the Federation of Fly Fishers for sponsoring our show tonight. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar, the directories for shops and guides, equipment and supplies, travel, media and clubs. That's it for tonight, folks. Good night, everyone. Good night.